Welcome to Preaching and Preachers, a weekly podcast devoted to those who preach and to the task of preaching itself. I'm your host, Jason Allen, president of Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. I have an exciting announcement for our podcast today. Uh, You may have read that I've invited Dr. Jared Bumpers to serve with me as co-host on Preaching and Preachers, and a part of that is he'll be occasionally interviewing me as well. Jared will also be recording standalone episodes here where he, like I, will be interviewing various authors and pastors on preaching and pastoral ministry. I've known Jared for many years here. He serves here on our faculty as well and uh, is a dear brother and colleague, and so I'm delighted to have him as co-host with me on Preaching and Preachers. Jared, welcome to the hot seat. <laughs> Thank you so much. I'm, I'm grateful for the opportunity and excited about the future. Yeah, no, I'm excited too. Of course, we announced this publicly a couple weeks ago now, but it's our first time in the studio together. And That's right. uh, you'll be talking with me in really two episodes, recording two back to back. They'll be dropped over two weeks, uh, building a conversation around my new book, uh, Turnaround The Remarkable Story of an Institutional Transformation and the 10 Essential Principles and Practices that Made It Happen. So, Jared, I'm eager to tell the story. Of course, I told it in the book, and uh, I've shared much of it over the years in personal and public settings, but I'm delighted today to be in the studio with you to record two episodes really from the book, and in so doing, we hope it's profoundly encouraging to all of our listeners. Yeah, I'm I'm excited about the book. I had a chance to get an advanced copy and and work my way through. And it's just miraculous what God has done here uh, the last 10 years. And so um, you just completed 10 years of service. And uh, this book contains a lot of the story, the trajectory of the seminary underneath your leadership. And it is a testimony. It really is a testimony of God's grace and of your leadership as well. So uh, looking forward to, to working through the book and, and talking about uh, how God has used you to turn around this institution. Well, I'll tell you, I'm, I'm eager to have the conversation today, but on the front end, I have to put out a few caveats. And those who have read the book know, or those who will read the book will know that I'm very clear from start to finish. This is not about Jason Allen, the great leader. It's just not. The narrative of the book is about how God in his kind providence used a team, is using a team here for a remarkable work. And so this book drips with team, and that's right, because uh, God has given us here an incredible collection of faculty, administration, staff, and senior leaders here who've just done incredible work the past 10 years. And so the credit goes to them, but the glory goes to God. Uh, All of this is overlaid by God's glory and His kind providence every step of the way has been with us. And I tell people, look, there are a lot of other institutions that are theologically faithful, that are seeking to serve the church, that that have a gifted team. But for whatever reason, God hasn't chosen to bless them numerically, quantifiably, as He's chosen to bless us. So that humbles us. That heightens our sense of stewardship. And so I'm delighted to have the conversation today. And even on the front end, look, uh, yeah, I say in the book early, and I say this often uh, publicly, I am really skeptical of what I refer to as the leadership industrial complex. Mm-hmm. And some of our listeners know where I get that phrase from. I'm borrowing it from the famous uh, final address Dwight Eisenhower gave the nation, uh, and he's going out as president. And uh, he gave this address about the military industrial complex and talked about there can be this reinforcing cycle of the military industrial complex that needs to produce arms uh, for their business model and a country that needs arms for defense. But there can be a cycle that can develop where people can be looking for wars Mm -hmm. to use these weapons and a military industrial complex that can financially benefit from these wars. And that can be a cycle, a reinforcing cycle that's unhealthy. And so, look, I believe that uh, the 21st century is an era of the leadership industrial complex. I mean, we live in an ocean of leadership content. And uh, there are podcasts, there are books, there are magazines, there are websites, there are conferences, there are coaches. I mean, it just never ends. 
And look, I have benefited from some of that, and I suppose in a small way I'm contributing to some of that through this book. But as I read throughout this book, leadership, I believe, is remarkably simple. Not easy, but simple. We'll talk about that some today, talk about that more extensively in the second broadcast. So I guess for our listeners, even on the front end, I want you to hear me say, you're not going to be like burdened by this book. This is not a bunch of new things you need to learn, a bunch of new theories you need to adapt, a bunch of new mantras that need to begin to come from your lips. I, I hope the leaders will be lifted up, will be encouraged by this leadership book. Yeah, I, I think I'm confident they will. And you're very, you are very clear on both of those things that you mentioned at the beginning of the book. Uh, but I want to give you a chance to share just the story of the turnaround. But before we jump right into the story, you mentioned four longitudinal themes, and you've already mentioned two of them. One is God's kind providence. And uh, you, you know that it's the grace of God that the seminary has experienced the growth that it has. But uh, I would just say that God has used you to do that. So I appreciate the humility uh, and God has done it, but, but he's used you. And so looking forward to hearing the story of how God used you to grow the institution. And then you reference team, uh, teamwork as well. Uh, you're a former college athlete. You recognize the importance of team and uh, think, think early on you, you built a great team who served well here. The, the two other things, I have a question on each of these that I think may be beneficial for our listeners. You mentioned the first longitudinal theme is leading where you are, and you share a story in the book about Steve Lawson. And so mm-hmm. I'd love for you to share that with our listeners and then kind of unpack what it would look like for aspiring pastor or a current pastor to just lead where they're at right now. Yeah, thank you. And again, the other word I'd say on the front end, even of framing the narrative for today and subsequent podcast, is the fact that uh, I, I think we need good news. And that's one reason I wrote the book as well, because there is a compelling story. I mean, an institution that's went from about 1,000 students to 5,000 students, an institution that's been, went from absolutely financially broke, couldn't pay our bills, uh, had debt hanging over us, creditors calling. I mean, we'll get into that later, but a financial nightmare to an institution that is a place of great financial strength. And so we read a lot of Christian ministry struggling. We read of pastors falling, of churches plateaued or declining, of Christian organizations and institutions compromising theologically, of Christian ministries facing headwinds so stiff that uh, that they're taking more steps backwards than forward. And so I hope the book is just encouraging for such to sit down and read and say, man, Christ is still building his church, and he's still using devoted Christian institutions to support that church. And so that's that's a part of what, what we're doing here. And you're right, you framed it around these uh, four longitudinal themes I referenced that, that run throughout the book. And uh, I've already referenced two, and, and you re-referenced those as well. Uh, God's kind providence every step of the way. We've talked about team as well. And uh, the first longitudinal theme that I mentioned is the importance of just leading where you are. And look, I wrote that section uh, candidly as a little bit of a rebuke to myself um, as to a lesson I learned very early in my ministry and have sought to abide by ever since. And I tell the story here about that. I'm in college, perhaps just out of college, serving with Steve Lawson, who was a key mentor to me. He married me, my wife, a, a dear friend. And look, I'm like, whatever, 22, 23, 24 years old, and I am as restless as the day is long. And I, it's not that I'm like, wanting to go do something else. I was loving what I was getting to do, but I was so worried about and preoccupied in my mind about what I would be doing for Christ in three years, five years, 10 years, 20 years. And I could find myself, man, I'm trying to prepare a sermon and like my mind is drifting. Hmm. I'm trying to, 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 to visit someone in the hospital and my mind is drifting as to what else may be out there for me. And uh, he spoke to me very warmly, but very directly and said, Jason, the most important job you'll ever have is the job you have right now. Hmm. And Jared, I needed that. I mean, those words landed on my heart before they landed in my ear. And and they spoke to me then, and I thought, you know what, man, I'm, I'm just going to be faithful where God has called me. And that was now over 20 years ago. 
And uh, I say this, and this may be kind of difficult to believe, but but I have never applied for a job in ministry. Um, I've never even had a resume. Now, on a couple of occasions, and most especially Midwestern Seminary, when they reached out to me, the President's Research Committee did, I did have to supply some documents, and yeah, I, I was did submit myself to the process. But I just have always said, Lord, I'm, I'm going to seek to be faithful and um, seek to keep my head down and serve. And if you want to move me, like, you know my cell phone number, you know my email address, you know how to to reach me. And that has served me well, not only ultimately as far as God opened the door for me to serve here, but it served me well every day of the week just not to be worried about what else I may get to do and just to focus on what I am getting to do. And God has blessed me with that. I think there's a word there for ministers as well, especially for for, for young ministers. It is so easy to, to man to view life like a jungle gym. And that's a part of our generation of self-promotion, of, of, of looking for better opportunities. And I would say to our ministers listening, man, be content. Trust the Lord. Rest in His providence. He knows your phone number. He knows your email address. He knows your Twitter handle. And He can <laughs> place you where He wants to place you, yeah. when He wants to place you. And in so doing, when He does, you have the confidence knowing God has placed you there. You've not engineered it. You've not called eight buddies and asked them to recommend you to the church. God has done it. And that should give you added confidence that you're in His will and added confidence that you are positioned because it's His will to accomplish what He's called you to do in that next ministry place. Yeah, that's great. God can open doors. We don't have to kick them down. Uh, Such an encouraging and and necessary word. Uh, The fourth one, uh, I I think that is touched on in the beginning that kind of weaves its way throughout the book is credibility. And obviously, you come in um, as one of the youngest seminary presidents uh, when you were uh, installed. And so you had to, to establish credibility. And I, when I was reading, I thought about how helpful that concept was, but also wondered, you know, what, what would you say to a new pastor who's stepping into a role? He's listening to this podcast and he's thinking, man, I'm young. I don't have any credibility. I don't have any, I haven't made any deposits. I can't make any leadership withdrawals. How, how would you encourage him to establish credibility as a new leader? Yeah, you know, my mind races to a comment made to me by a man named Duke McCall. Dr. McCall died now close to 10 years ago, shortly after I came to Midwestern Seminary. He was this leading Southern Baptist figure in the 20th century. Uh, He served as president of New Orleans Seminary, uh, then as president of the Executive Committee in Nashville, and then for just over 30 years as president of Southern Seminary in Louisville. So I got to know him. I was in my uh, early 30s, and he was in his early 90s. But he was very kind to me and took an interest in me, and just through various kind of providential uh, happenings, we became pretty close. And uh, he, he told me a story about whenever he went to be pastor, of the Broadway Baptist Church in Louisville, Kentucky. And this was early. I mean, this was in the first half of the 20th century. Uh, this would have been, uh, oh, good grief, this would have been in the 1930s, if my memory serves me correctly. Mm-hmm. And Broadway then was probably most likely the most prominent Southern Baptist Church in Louisville, perhaps in Kentucky, had major money there. It was, you know, the the old upper crust church in the city. Well, anyway, he is a very young man, but his father is well-established in Southern Baptist life. Uh, Duke McCall then is, I think, 26, as I recall. And he's completing his PhD at Southern. He had had some unique opportunities in his 20s, and so was positioned to be this church's pastor. And he's in the final kind of interview with the deacons there, and and um, and and he says something to them like this. And I'm going to have this pretty much verbatim, but but he says to them something like this. He says, "Gentlemen, I'll have you know that uh, if you call me here um, to be your pastor, no one will be more aware of my youthfulness than I will be. However, if you do call me, I'll interpret that to mean." That, that you believe, and I believe God is calling me here to be your pastor, and I will so lead accordingly. And one of the deacons said, so what you're saying to us, if you come here, you're going to be the boss. 
And he said, that is not exactly what I'm saying, but if you were to misunderstand what I'm saying, that would be the appropriate direction to which you should misunderstand it. <laughs> yeah. And so, uh, you know, and that's been as Duke McCall in, in every way. For me, in that, ministers, I believe, are to be passive about where they serve. If God calls them there, God calls them there knowing full well who they are, their experience, their age. And so we don't have to show up and apologize. We should not be going around apologizing for the fact we're 32 or 38 or 28. At the same time, we should be aware of our age. We should be aware of our, our relative lack of experience. So we're not apologizing, but that should bring added humility. And the way I've approached it over the years, um, and again, now over 20 years in vocational ministry is, when I'm a younger man, I want to speak to the older man of the faith uh, as a Timothy to a Paul. Um, when I'm speaking to people roughly my age, speak like it's the Paul to Barnabas. And uh, now I'm in a position to have a lot of younger men around me, and I want to speak to them kind of like a Paul to Timothy. And so being aware of those life stages is key. Now, as it relates to the credibility one has in a church, in a ministry place, the first thing I would say is, again, you show it with a sense of if God has called, you believe God is calling you. You don't strut about it, but you're not apologizing either. The second thing I would say is, look, credibility and trust really are accrued over time. And you're going to deepen that credibility every time you do a funeral, every time you preach a sermon, every time you lead your church through some naughty pastoral issue, particularly if it's a sin issue, and they see you deal with that with, with care and with, with biblical faithfulness. So those things will enhance your credibility. And the truth of the matter is, especially if you're younger, um, it takes a while to enhance that credibility, but it doesn't take that long to, to, to detract from that credibility. Right. And so, look, I, I recall well, you know, my early years as a pastor, my first pastor, and you're there, and, and I was like 24, 25, the first church I got to serve as a pastor. And, uh, you know, you, don't, you can't say to lay leaders, you know, in my 30 years of being a pastor, I've learned that this is how we should handle it. You, you know, you don't show up with gray hair. They don't look at you and you have, you know, an MDiv, and in that case I didn't, and obviously not a PhD. And so it's just kind of like you're like a boy with a Bible. Mm-hmm. But really, if you have the Bible and you're thinking clearly and biblically and pointing people to it, that's all you need. And yeah. so I would derive that credibility, first and foremost, by being scripturally faithful. And then second of all, by being pastorally faithful. And over time, that will deepen and enhance it. Yeah. It, you're, you reminded me of H.B. Uh, uh, Charles tells a story about his installation after his father passed away in E.V. Hill saying, you know, he preached a sermon, what can this boy tell me? And his kind of his main thrust was he can tell you whatever God tells him. That derived authority from Scripture really does uh, set up a pastor to, to serve and to lead well. So uh, th- thank you for sharing that. Let's, let's move into the story of Midwestern. As you reflect on the last 10 years, you kind of weave in and out of the book uh, stories, snippets. Um, it, it, there are a couple of stories. There's one in particular that I want to ask you about later on, ask you to, to reshare just because, man, it, it was so well told in the book. Uh, but but I'd love for you to just kind of give us a, a 30,000 foot overview of the, the turnaround in the seminary. And so uh, if we can, I'd like to take it kind of section by section. And so let, let's start with facilities. So tell us about the facilities at Midwestern, the shape that they were in when you arrived in 2012, and then uh, by the grace of God, where we are today. Yeah. So to tell the story just makes me smile. And again, in so doing, I'm going to try to follow your lead, co-host, <laughs> but also doing, I'm, I'm dipping around the book itself because different dots intersect and it helps me to tell the story. Look, when I came to Midwestern Seminary, um, someone said to me, Jason, Midwestern Seminary has the, the, the most beautiful grounds but the ugliest buildings in Southern Baptist life. Another denominational leader said to me, said, said, Jason, you need to raise every building on campus. He said, every building either has to be bulldozed or comprehensively renovated. And uh, I, I didn't know that because I had never been here before. 
And the interviews that, that the presidential search committee had with me were held in remote cities. And again, that, that's that's fine. And sometimes that's done because of, uh, you know, help with confidentiality and whatnot. But my wife and I smile thinking maybe a touch of that was because, like, the campus looks so bad. Surely there's some strategy yeah, yeah, involved. Yeah, maybe there's some strategy there. And so we never been to Kansas City. We look back in the fact that, that uh, you know, I remember we moved here. And then kind of after being six months here, we thought we really enjoy living in Kansas City, you know. And, and it was kind of an afterthought then. But now you're there. And you're like, oh, gosh, I'm glad we enjoy it. But the facilities were in a great state of want. The footprint was small. The original cluster of buildings were built in the late 1950s and had really not been renovated since then. Yeah, mm-hmm. People had thrown some paint on the walls over the years and some carpet down, but, but it was rough. Another denominational leader said to me, jokingly, he said, you know, all your buildings look like an old beat-up National Guard armory. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and that was tough. That's what we came into. What is more, the chapel complex um, that we now enjoy, and it was a very ambitious project launched by my predecessor— Again, it was definitely a need, but it had been stalled out for over a year. And so not only were the buildings old and beat up and the grounds old and beat up, the primary building on campus, New Chapel Complex, had been stalled out. And so the the walls had been stoned, but the inside, the progress is stalled out for lack of money. So that became its own source of demoralization. Mm -hmm. The other thing, and this is kind of a laugher here, and I don't think I mentioned this in the book, uh, perhaps I, I make a slight reference to it is, the campus was overwhelmed by geese, Jared. <laughs> and look, I learned to, to hate geese very quickly because the geese pooped everywhere. Uh, I mean, like everywhere. It was just covered. With, with, I mean, it was, it was awful. It was terrible. I mean, every sidewalk was just, was just splattered with geese poop. And I remember uh, business owner in my early weeks here, like, okay, you know, we, we got a lot we need to do here. We got to fix buildings. We got to hire faculty. We got to build a team. But like, I, probably one may actually be right now. Just get the geese out of my life. And so I still remember an employee coming to my office and saying, Dr. Allen, I found this company called the Geese Police. And if you can pay them $2,000, they'll come out and get all the geese off your camp. I'm like, you mean to tell me? And he was like asking, like, can we spend 2000 bucks? It was a relevant question because we were so broke that we didn't have it. But I said, look, I will personally pay $2,000 out of my personal checking account to get these geese out of my life. And so we were able to shoot them up to some other part of Kansas City. So my point is, uh, it was bleak. It was needy. And uh, over time, as we've sequentially renovated the entirety of campus, um, that's been profoundly rewarding. It it has been a touch sad because I used to always have a building or two or three I could take folks and show them the before and the after. Mm -hmm. And now there's just only the after, which is sweet, but but I almost wish we had a, a point of reference previously. Yeah. Well, praise the Lord, we don't have a previous point of reference. I know our students and faculty and staff are are thankful for the facilities that we have here. Uh, let, let's uh, let's talk a little bit about financially. You mentioned some of this, a project being stalled out. You, you flushed this out in the book. So just talk a little bit about the financial state of the institution when you arrived. Yeah. And so, again, we're going to connect some dots here um, on the financial front and back to the facilities. You know, we've spent close to $50 million the past 10 years for new construction, uh, for renovations and then current renovations we currently are, are in the middle of. And uh, God has been kind, giving us that money either through um, fundraising or through just um, our own capital budget. And we have no debt associated with it. So, I mean, God has been kind. Most schools have debt. And so we are debt free. Now, that leads me to the financial picture. So 10 years ago, um, we had a budget of about $9 million. We had revenues of about $8 million. And Jared, we had no reserves, none. What is more, um, the same meeting I was elected, the board also voted to borrow a million dollars to go towards finishing the chapel project. Now, it desperately needed to be finished because it was just an eyesore. And a million dollars isn't a lot of money, but if you're dead broke, it actually is. And especially the fact they did that, uh, they, they proceeded to borrow money without seeking SBC approval, which is fine. You can do that, but you have to pay it back within three years. So I had like a debt clock staring me in the face with no money. 
And I knew that at times had been lean because I had read the reports about financial austerity and layoffs and things like that that had happened. But I thought that was a part of the past, and largely our trustees did as well. But getting here and realizing kind of on the ground, um, we have no money. And I remember unpacking my office, literally unpacking the boxes in my office, and the CFO, then the interim CFO, came to me and said, we don't think we can make payroll this week. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Wow. And, uh, and that was traumatic here. And the last thing I wanted to do was to – you know, go through another round of layoffs, inflict all that trauma on an already traumatized faculty and staff. Nor did I want to send out distress flares of where we need a financial bailout because we're trying to move forward and it's hard to move forward if you keep making U-turns. And so I didn't want to do that either. And so we had a scratch and claw and by God's grace, we had some financial wins. And um, we'll talk about this perhaps more later, but just mm -hmm. to touch on a couple of these now, we had a couple very early, early months who never been to Kansas City before, never been to our campus, but believed in, in me and, and what we're doing. They gave us a $500,000 gift, just undesignated, boom. Well, that helped us pay some bills and gave us a little measure of reserve fund. And then we had an, another donor, I tell these stories in the books, another donor who loved the seminary came to me and said, uh, look, I'm still in my business. I want to help. Where are the needs? And he said to me, point blank, he said, you know, I'm willing to give to things most folks want. For instance, I'm willing to pay off debt. And I said, you know, we are a match made in heaven. I got this <laughs> chapel debt, and he paid it off. And then we had some other wins. The Spurgeon Library, a $2.5 million gift. Other folks stepped up in very generous ways to support our, our fusion program, uh, which has been a huge blessing to our students. And then, and then we received an unsolicited $1 million gift. That same family gave another $6 million for the student center. And then we were kind of off and running. And so all that's to say, you know, for an institution like Midwestern Seminary, the two words that are the two most important words, uh, if you're the president, is the word mission and the word money. And most schools don't do a very good job at either. Finances are kind of busted and they kind of loom, go from one looming crisis to the next, engaging in crisis fundraising. And most schools have drifted from their mission. And so most schools don't do either well. Um, some schools perhaps do one or other well. Uh, we're really working hard to do both well here. Yep. And as we've been clear about that mission for the church, for the church, for the church, what we have found is that has so resonated with our constituency, um, they've been willing to support us and stand with us. They believe in that. And we've been intentional with the money on the money side of the equation to steward that wisely. And yes, part of that has been stewarding that into facilities and uh, into operating budgets. So now as we record, uh, we went from, you know, $8 million in revenue, $9 million budget. Um, this year, we'll have north of $30 million in revenue, and we'll operate well within that, within the context of our spending. Praise the Lord. One of the things we'll talk about later on in the next episode is stewardship. And even hearing you talk about finances, I think of I think of two things. I think of gospel generosity and God blessing people financially who then invested in the institution, demonstrated or displayed gospel generosity. And then the, the second thing, they're on stewardship, just stewarding the money once Midwestern kind of clawed out of that place, being at a financially stable place. Uh, well, let's, uh, let, let's one, one more thing, sure. and then we'll, we'll wrap this up. Uh, give us a, a, a overview of the faculty when you arrived, and then where we're at faculty-wise now. Yeah, no, as, as I talk about in the book, um, man, God had many of his choicest people here teaching, and I'm grateful for them. Many of those are still here. They've done a fantastic job, are doing a fantastic job. The resource situation was so limited that the seminary really cannot invest in them as we'd hope. Plus, given just the ongoing drama of the school, um, it's not been really a place conducive to, to really lead out in publishing and to really be the type of faculty they could be. And so over the past 10 years, we've done two things intentionally. One is we sought to invest in the, the remaining faculty and to see many of those come into their own and, and be writing and 
preaching and presenting ETS and, and really kind of come into their own by way of their own potential has been sweet. And then additionally, alongside of them, to very strategically hire key scholars who come in. And so we've been able to add a long list of accomplished faculty members over the years to where right now, I mean, look, I know I'm biased, but I really believe we have a faculty that's second to none anywhere uh, based upon not just their scholarship, that's a key piece, but their churchmanship, their devotion to the Great Commission, their givingness to students and to life-on-life mentorship. And it's really strong. And so you look at, you know, you measure about things like books published, which uh, rank so high every year, right? things like ETS presentations, where we, we often are at or atop the pack of institutions who have ETS presenters, other things like that. So it matters. And uh, it's a part of God's kind providence people is called here to serve. Yeah, God has been so kind to the institution. You look at facilities, finances, faculty right now, and then enrollment uh, quintupling since you've been here, roughly 1,000 to 5,000, man. The Lord has just been so kind to us. And so uh, in our next uh, next episode, we'll look at some of the principles uh, that, that led to this just uh, gracious, incredible, providential turnaround. Thank you for being with us today and for listening to Preaching and Preachers. For more information, go to my website, jasonkallen.com. That's jasonkallen.com.